As you know, beloved listeners, pirated attacks on commercial vessels have been a, a constant over the last decade or so, especially in the Indian Ocean of Somalia and the Gulf of Aden off Yemen. But back in 2011 off Yemen, there was an attack with a difference. A giant oil tanker was set alight by pirates. And after a British man, David Mockett, inspected the damage for the insurers and had suspicions, he was murdered. Now, a new book dives into a spectacular case of financial fraud and finds that the exploitative shipping industry is largely unaccountable for the often damaging and corrupt power that it wields. Matthew Campbell is the co-author with Kit Chalel of Dead in the Water, Murder and Fraud in the World's Most Secretive Industry. Matthew is a reporter and editor of international features from Bloomberg Businessweek and joins us from Singapore. Matthew, thanks for your time. One of the most powerful elements of the story is what happens to David Mockett. So would you introduce us to this uh, interesting fellow who had, I guess, one too many adventures? David Mockett was a British man, 65 years old at the at the time when this book begins to unfold. He'd lived much of his life in the Middle East, in, in Saudi Arabia, and then in Yemen. And David was what's called a marine surveyor, which is sort of a, a, on a grand scale, the equivalent of, of the person the insurance company sends if a, if a tree falls on your house, uh, a claims adjuster who goes to check out the damage, write up a report and uh, make an estimate of what the insurance company might be on the hook for. So David did that uh, for extremely complex marine accidents, and particularly in and around Yemen, uh, which is where he lived and and happens to be next to one of the world's busiest sea lanes. Now, uh, we should point out he was a large lad, six foot four, with, as you say, a thunderous laugh, and a quite charming wife, Cynthia. That's right. Uh, he was very noticeable, certainly stuck out in a place like Yemen. Uh, people used to joke he was the tallest man in the country. Uh, someone said to me he had uh, hands like giant plates of meat and a booming laugh and a big personality. Uh, a wonderful wife, Cynthia, who uh, lots of people uh, in Aden, the Yemeni city where David lived, uh, knew and loved. So uh, really uh, kind of a larger-than-life character, someone who was very well-known in this community where he had uh, somewhat eccentrically decided to make his life. Well, let's look at Yemen as it was at the time. Uh, It sounds like a a hardship post, not one that you'd volunteer for. It certainly could be seen that way, although uh, David loved living there, as did some of the other expats who he uh, was friendly with uh, in the city of Aden. Uh, Yemen is the poorest country in the Middle East. It's a very unstable place. Uh, At times, it's been almost barely governed and indeed now is in the grip of a really horrible civil war. In 2011, this was the Arab Spring, as as you'll recall. So uh, this unrest spread from Tunisia across the Arab world. Uh, and Yemen, uh, which was ruled by this uh, sort of operatically corrupt, uh, mustachioed strongman named Ali Abdullah Saleh, uh, had had a very similar experience. So 
there were running street battles, huge protests that uh, were suppressed violently by the security forces. It was a very, very messy place in the summer of 2011. As you can hear, beloved listeners, uh, Matthew Campbell has a way with words, and we're currently discussing David Mockett. And uh, I like his uh, dismissal of Dubai as uh, being too like Disneyland. Indeed. So David had really spent his whole career in uh, tricky places, uh, Saudi Arabia and and then uh, Yemen. And uh, he tried to live in London for a while. He tried to live in Dubai, but he just uh, couldn't take it. He didn't like uh, being in the places where everyone else was. He wanted to be out on the edge a little bit. And uh, that is what kept him in Yemen so long, too long, as it turned out. And he thought the dangers were overhyped, even though someone had uh, taken a pot shot at him. He was shot in 2001 uh, in uh, what seemed like a a random incident, although uh, certainly his wife and others had suspicions that perhaps it wasn't so random. But uh, he'd been very lucky. A bullet uh, had ricocheted off of his car and uh, gone clean through his neck. Uh, putting him in hospital, but but missing anything important. But yeah, he stayed. Uh, he felt like this was a place where he was safe, or at least where he understood the risks and, and never felt the need to leave. Now, Matthew, the Gulf of Aden operates or opens into the Indian Ocean, so it's a, a very important shipping route. That's correct. So uh, if we can just sort of mentally sketch the map here, uh, any vessel going into Suez or coming out of Suez Uh, has to pass through the Gulf of Aden uh, on its way to the Indian Ocean. So essentially all the marine traffic uh, going between Europe and Asia, or or indeed Europe and Australia, uh, needs to pass through this body of water between Yemen and Somalia, uh, which are two of the world's most unstable countries. Uh, At this time, 2011, it was the height of the Somali piracy situation. There were vessels being attacked every couple of days, Often those attacks were unsuccessful, but with remarkable frequency, uh, big container ships, big oil tankers, even uh, yachts sometimes were being successfully hijacked and, and taken to Somalia. Now, along comes a whopping oil tanker, we're talking July 2011, which ironically, given current events, was bringing oil from Ukraine to China. Indeed, it was actually bringing oil from Crimea, believe it or not, which is a place we've all learned a lot more about in the years since. So the Brillante Virtuoso was a very large oil tanker, 274 meters long. Uh, if you can imagine how big that is, it's, it's uh, about as tall as the Chrysler Building, uh, New York City, uh, laid on its side. And uh, on the night of July 5th, 2011, Uh, It was attacked by a band of apparent uh, Somali pirates who uh, took control of the vessel, uh, ended up causing an explosion which set it alight and really destroyed it, burned it out completely. Uh, It was still afloat, but in financial terms, it was a write-off. And I say apparent pirates because, uh, as it would turn out, there was much more to this attack than, than met the eye immediately. Okay, we'll come back to that shortly, but we've done programs in the past on the use and abuse of Filipino crew. Uh, Just remind us of the top-down model of the world shipping industry and what that means for its uh, unfortunate employees. 
The shipping industry has been engaged in a 70-year race to cut costs, and uh, they do that because we all want uh, cheap goods, and, and an easy way to make things cheaper is to reduce the cost of transport. And one of the primary ways in which costs have been cut is on labor. Uh, time was that there were lots of sailors uh, in a country like Australia or the UK or the US. That's gone. Nowadays, crews are almost entirely from very poor developing countries. The Philippines is typically number one. Uh, India and Indonesia are also right up there. Uh, they are paid very little. They work extraordinarily hard. Uh, and really have very little recourse uh, in the event of uh, abuses by uh, ship owners or others. And if anything goes wrong, uh, they're the ones who are injured or killed. Now the plot thickens. Here's a, here's a giant ship, 200 feet above the water. It's got water cannons and ringed with razor wire to, uh, you know, to fend off the pirates. And yet, when a skiff full of armed blokes approach... Crew lowers a ladder? It is astonishing. The uh, story, uh, as it would be recounted later uh, to the US Navy uh, and to others uh, investigating, was that these guys had employed a ruse, that these pirates had claimed uh, that they were the security team that uh, the vessel had hired. This is something that was beginning to become popular at the time. Uh, ships would take on armed security for the most dangerous part of the passage. So uh, these gunmen who wore camouflage, they had uh, Kalashnikov-type assault rifles, uh, apparently claimed to uh, be that security team, uh, even though they were early and there were uh, too many of them. The security team was not supposed to be so many people. Uh, nonetheless, this ruse worked. And they were invited, essentially, on board, whereupon uh, the mask was quickly removed and uh, they took control of the ship at gunpoint. Matthew, tell us about uh, the rather brave fellow, Alan Marquez. Alan Marquez is a Filipino sailor who was the uh, able seaman, so a low-ranking uh, crewman, who actually physically lowered the ladder. He received the order from the captain to let these gunmen on board. Uh, Alan was very reluctant to do so, but as a low-ranking seaman, of course, he, he followed the order, did as he was told. Uh, he would uh, later uh, emerge to tell his story. I actually ended up tracking him down uh, some years later and uh, would recount the truth, uh, something that he had kept to himself for all of the years in between. So, one bloke questions this version of events and he is going to pay with his life. Re-enter David Mockett. David was hired in the immediate aftermath of the attack on the Brillante Virtuoso to evaluate the damage. His clients were the vessel's insurers at Lloyd's in London and they needed David to get eyes on it to go aboard, ascertain uh, what had occurred, uh, evaluate the severity of the damage, and of course, uh, help these insurers come up with an estimate of what needed to be paid out. So uh, David did get on board. He uh, inspected the vessel bow to stern, took uh, almost 300 photographs, interviewed uh, some of the people around this incident, and began to have doubts. I think suspicions is probably 
too strong a word. But uh, David believed that there was more to the story, that uh, what he was being told had occurred was, in fact, uh, not what had happened. Well, he asks, and, he asks himself the, the obvious question, why leave a, a tanker full of precious oil adrift instead of holding it for ransom like normal pirates? Exactly. That's where it started at the most basic level. The whole game of piracy is to hold vessels for ransom. And that means that once you get on board, uh, you do not get off unless you absolutely have to. So why uh, go to all the trouble of hijacking a vessel only to set off a fire that destroyed it and then to flee? And Matthew, passing on, well, having passed on his, uh, his concerns, he's, uh, he's killed. That's right. Uh, David, on the 20th of July, 2011, uh, got into his car outside his office in Aden, uh, turned the ignition. Uh, this is after uh, having, as you say, uh, informed various people in the maritime world about his doubts about this incident. He uh, drove out from his office onto one of the busiest roads in Aden, and a bomb that had been placed under his seat uh, detonated, clearly intended only for him, uh, killing him instantly. Now, this is a story of villainy and villains, but let's uh, now talk about the villain of all, the ship's owner. The Brillante was owned by a Greek tycoon named Mario Siliopoulos. Uh, it actually took uh, the insurers and the investigators working on this case some time to figure that out. Uh, like a lot of ships, uh, the official owner was a shell company uh, called Suez Fortune, uh, in this case registered in the Marshall Islands. And that is completely standard in commercial shipping, uh, anonymous ownership, anonymous beneficial ownership, I should say where you do have a, a shell company with a meaningless name incorporated just to hold one vessel, and the actual human being behind it is quite difficult to find. So Marius is a wealthy Greek shipping tycoon uh, with a reputation as a bit of a risk taker, a bit of a gambler. He, uh, in his spare time, is actually a rally car driver, a very good rally driver, and, and that informs his attitude to business. I like the description of him having quote, the swagger of a professional wrestler approaching the ring, his unshaven features twisted into a scowl, arms swinging by his sides, untucked shirt over an ample stomach. Indeed, he is a, a very uh, cinematic character and nothing like the uh, archetypal image of a Greek shipping tycoon. Uh, you know, some of your listeners may may remember uh, Aristotle Onassis and Stavros Niarchos, who were two of the great business personalities of uh, the 50s and 60s, and they were suave international men of mystery. Well, uh, one, wore... the, the former so much so that uh, Jackie Kennedy married him. Well, indeed. And actually, um, they both married the same woman. <laughs> they, both, they both had a lot of marriages. Uh, they, they also both married a shipping heiress named Tina Livanos, who was reputed to be the most beautiful woman in Greece. Uh, so they had a real, uh, they had a real style about them. Uh, Marius Iliopoulos is the complete opposite of that. I think it's also time to tell the listener about Lloyd's, which in fact doesn't actually sell insurance and never has. It operates through its uh, so-called members, one of whom incidentally was an ex-Prime Minister of Australia in Malcolm Fraser. 
That is not surprising at all. In fact, a lot of wealthy people over the years have invested in Lloyd's policies, becoming what are called names. And the way Lloyd's works is, uh, as you say, it does not sell insurance. Uh, what Lloyd's is, is a market. It is physically and, and virtually a meeting place where actual insurers, the, the Prudentials and AIGs and, and all the other names people will be familiar with, come to write policies. And uh, what Lloyd's specializes in are very complex, big risks, uh, big tickets. So if you have a space station that you need to insure or a satellite, uh, you might go to Lloyd's. Uh, but really, the heart of the operation is insuring maritime voyages and, and vessels. I, li I like the fact that you do an A to Z from airlines to zoos. Indeed, it's it's everything, and and there are all kinds of uh, weird examples too. Uh, a lot of celebrities have taken out Lloyd's policies on, uh, for example, Bruce Springsteen's voice. Uh, and, and the idea is that anything that can be lost or cause a loss can be insured at Lloyd's. So if Bruce Springsteen loses his voice, uh, he's in for a big payout uh, to compensate for the fact that, of course, he he can't perform anymore. Now this is really interesting. And in this case, there were legal teams willing to settle, even though it was apparent to most that this was a fraudulent claim. That astonished me when I found this out uh, in the course of investigating this case. And it turns out, however, that dodgy claims, particularly dodgy maritime claims involving big ships, are paid out or at least settled all the time at Lloyd's. And there are several reasons for this. Uh, one of them is simply practical, that it's very hard to prove fraud. There is a high legal bar in the English courts for doing so. Uh, the other reason is that, frankly, uh, ship owners are big clients. Uh, they spend an awful lot of money at Lloyd's, and Lloyd's, in turn, uh, makes a great deal of money. Accusing your clients of fraud is bad for business. And if that means uh, paying out the odd uh, suspicious claim to keep the machine turning, uh, that's what happens. Matthew, that, uh, the aspect of London's financial and legal system has been, uh, well, further exposed recently since Russia's war against Ukraine. There's evidence of uh, London's system's profound links to the oligarchs. I think you can actually view what's happened in shipping and maritime insurance in London uh, within the same context. And I don't want to uh, offend anyone's uh, sensibilities, but, but I think I can, I can say with some confidence that uh, the ethical standards of the City of London are not especially high. And uh, there has been a there is a sharp intake of breath from our thousands yeah. of listeners. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so, Indeed. Uh, so what was the upshot of this case, Matthew? Well, uh, ultimately, uh, there were a series of criminal investigations. There was a, a very long-running uh, civil suit, uh, which ended with a decisive verdict in London in 2019 uh, that put an end to it from a uh, civil legal perspective. But uh, remarkably, this is, this is an unfinished story. Uh, no one has ever been prosecuted for either the uh, attack and, and insurance fraud uh, of this enormous oil tanker, and uh, more, even more importantly, from my view, uh, no one has ever been charged with David Mockett's murder. His family has never gotten anything like justice, and, and my hope is that the book 
does draw some attention to this case and, and get law enforcement more interested. Well, let's look at that aspect of the story because uh, you tell about Cynthia Mockett's attempt to uh, pursue perhaps just a little financial compensation. Cynthia Mockett, uh, David's widow, never received any compensation from uh, his employers at Lloyd's or anyone else. Uh, the British government uh, did do a little bit of investigating of David's murder, but of course uh, it occurred in a faraway country in Yemen at an unstable time. And, uh, you know, the Met Police, Scotland Yard, are, are not the FBI. They do not do uh, extraterritorial uh, investigations, really. Uh, as a result, this was kind of put in the in the too hard drawer by uh, British law enforcement, and and indeed uh, almost ended up in that drawer at the Lloyd's Market. This was very nearly uh, settled and paid out, and and swept under the rug. Little wonder that you and your co-author are left, uh, well, a little jaundiced. <laughs> by the way, the shipping, finance, and legal worlds operate. I uh, have. I, I spent uh, the better part of a decade uh, reporting in London, doing a lot of uh, investigative stories, and I would say that uh, jaundiced would be would be an accurate description of, of how I left it. Now let's uh, check on the state of play for the aforementioned uh, Marios, the uh, the daunting the daunting figure who owned the boat. Mario Siliopoulos uh, continues to be a prominent Greek ship owner in apparently good standing. Uh, he uh, owns uh, a number of uh, ocean-going vessels as well as a company called Sea Jets, uh, which is one of the largest ferry operators in the Greek islands. Uh, remarkably, uh, even after being involved in uh, what, what a London judge uh, called a, a massive and audacious fraud, uh, Mario Siliopoulos continues to get insurance at Lloyd's. Uh, so it is It is all pretty astonishing. And, of course, the scale of the industry is, well, it's astronomical, uh, mostly hidden from view. You tell us there are more than 11,000 oil tankers. The scale of shipping is indeed incredible, and there, there's a wonderful book I, I would commend to your listeners uh, called 90% of Everything. Uh, which is all about uh, the basics of how it works. And, and the title says it all, that uh, 90% of, of every physical good typically comes by boat. But uh, most of us don't notice it. Uh, partly that's because of the way the technology has evolved. Container ships are now so large that uh, ports, for example, moved out of big cities. Uh, New York used to have a very busy uh, seafront that's all gone. It's moved out to New Jersey. You know, in London, it went up to Felixstowe. Uh, so people don't even see these vessels anymore. They don't know sailors. They don't think about it. It's like uh, utility wires or water pipes. Uh, it's just kind of receded into the background of modern life. Well, it's come forward thanks to you and your co-author. Matthew, thanks for coming on. Matthew Campbell, his co-author is Kit Chalel, and the book is Dead in the Water. Murder and Fraud in the World's Most Secretive Industry. Both authors, journalists with Bloomberg, and the book is published by Alan and Unwin. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks so much, Philip. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.